Man, I, I would imagine at some point in time in your life, you've gone out and made a purchase and you've brought home this, this box and you've opened it up and you've laid out all of the pieces to build a cabinet or uh, a bench or something like that. And you've grabbed the instructions and you've opened them up and looked at it and thought to yourself, who in the world designed this and who in the world wrote these directions? I remember one time my wife and I bought an entertainment center from a uh, Swedish furniture company. I, I won't name them, but the initials are I-K-E-A. Um, and we brought it home and we started to, to unpack it and we got all the things laid out for us. And I remember looking at the directions and thinking, this doesn't make any sense at all. And it was a, a, a wrestling. In fact, it was a, a, at times maybe even a, an opportunity for regressive sanctification as I was trying to figure out what the picture on the page was telling me to do. Contrast that. Recently, I went out and got a, a new Weber charcoal grill, you know, the old kettle version that's tried and true. And I brought that home and I opened it up and I laid the pieces out in front of me and I pulled out the directions and the directions actually had a website to go to that I could see a 3D instruction manual for how to put together this Weber grill. It was such a difference from the IKEA instructions where you're reading it, trying to decipher which side is up and which uh, words go where and which pole is supposed to connect to what and which screws fit with which holes. The Weber was so clear and so precise and I could see it and it was there and it was telling me exactly what I should be doing. You know, we're wrapping up First Peter this week. This is our final message in this series of firm in your faith. And as we do this, uh, we're reflecting back on a book that has been much like those Weber 3D instructions were. This book has provided us a blueprint. It's provided us a manual. It's provided us a way forward for how should we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to you and I as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. This has been God's blueprints for suffering well. This has been God's instruction manual for how we should endure, how we should persevere, how we should carry on as brothers in Christ in the face of a world where we don't belong. Peter told us very early on in this letter that you and I are aliens and strangers in this world. And the rest of this book has been about what does that now look like? And it's not like the IKEA instruction manual where you're turning it upside down and left and right trying to figure out, you know, is this the right way? Is that the right way? What, how does this look? Peter's been very clear for us. He's made God's ex expectations of us extremely and abundantly clear for us. I'm reminded of, of King David in the book of the Psalms when uh, he was so often on the run and he was fleeing from Saul or he was fleeing from another adversary and he was uh, pleading to the Lord and he was calling the Lord his refuge and his shield and his stronghold and his tower and his fortress. And I remember oftentimes reading those verses as a young man and thinking to myself, well, that's great, but what does it actually look like to flee to God as my refuge in the time of trouble? What does it actually look like to see, say that God is my fortress? And how do I take refuge in him? How is he my shield? What does that practically look like in my life? Well, Peter's been answering that question for us in this book. And as our book comes to a close, he's going to continue to unfold the blueprints for us. We're not done yet. This isn't just wrapping it up with a few concluding thoughts and tying a bow on things. Peter still has some marching orders for you and I as believers. In fact, he's got three of them left for us that are going to encourage us as we think once more about living as strangers and aliens in this world on how we should be practically seeking refuge in the Lord our God. 
reminder of the, the context here, as I've mentioned, it's a time of persecution. Peter's been writing during the time of Nero's persecution, between AD 64 and 65. Think back to the burning of Rome and when Nero blamed the Christians and how the heat got raised against the Christians. And Christians were forced to to flee from Rome, to flee the dispersion up into the area of modern-day Turkey. And how these, these believers were away from everything that they held dear, everything that they loved. And the theme throughout this letter has been uh, believers in exile. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 1 Peter 1.6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. 1 Peter 2.19, for it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 1 Peter 3.14 But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. 1 Peter 3.17 For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. 1 Peter 4.1 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 1 Peter 4.16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This letter has been a clarion call. It's been a, a clear, a bold, a plain call to you and I to suffer well, to entrust ourselves to our creator as we live lives of godliness in a world that is a godless place. As you and I live these lives, the the persecution, the opposition is going to be ratcheted up against us. And as Peter concludes his letter, he has further instructions for us. Pick up in verse five and let's read down through verse 11. Peter says this, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we read that, it's, again, Peter's final charge to you and I, his final marching orders. And he begins in verse five with an application from what we talked about last week about the elders, about the pastors, about the shepherds of the church who were oftentimes older men in the church. And so Peter writes to those who are younger and he says that they should be subject to those elders, that they should be obedient to the church leadership, that a a church that is led well needs those that, that are going to live well under that authority. But then he moves beyond that to all of us. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This charge, clothe yourselves with humility. It's a beautiful picture of of putting on humility. Like one would take up a garment, like one would put on clothes. We are to put on humility. And I want you to think about in the morning when you get ready for the day, 
and it's probably different now in the midst of our lockdown than it is normally, but uh, if, if you had an appointment, if you had a, a business meeting, how you would dress yourself, that you would wake up and you would give thought, you would give intention to how you dress yourself, to the clothes that you put on, because you want to appear uh, noble. You want to appear uh, in a respectable, that's what I was looking for, a respectable fashion, right? You don't want to be thought, somebody to be looking at you going, did this guy get dressed in the dark? What in the world happened here, right? You don't want to look like a slob either. You put on the clothes that you put on in order to make yourself appealing to those that you're going to be around. Well, Peter is telling us in order for us to be appealing to the Lord, we need to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. And he gives a motivation there. He says, why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes, he resists. He sets himself against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is a verse that harkens back to Proverbs 3.34, which says this, toward the scorners, he, God, is scornful. But to the humble, he gives favor. He gives favor to the humble. James 4, 6 says something similar, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter's telling us, you know, we need to be men of humility, men of humility towards the Lord and men of humility towards one another. I think back to the words of Christ, our Savior, who said this. He said, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This posture of humility towards one another. You think of Christ in the upper room as he's washing the disciples' feet, a, 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 a position of, of utter humiliation, that this was a, a task reserved for the lowest of the household slaves, that this was getting down and literally dirty with the, the grotesque feet of the disciples who had been walking on those dirty streets. And our Savior was doing that, humbling himself as an object lesson, because later he would say, as I've done to you, so also you should do to one another. And he wasn't just saying that we should wash one another's feet. He was saying, no, we should humbly serve one another. Peter's saying we need to clothe ourselves with that humility. And he gives us that motivation because number one, God opposes the proud. But then he goes further here and he says, because also we should humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now Peter has our our motivation, not just in, in God's opposition, but also in his power, in his strength. Uh, Again, to, to be humble is not to be boisterous. It's not to be defiant. It's not to be demanding or claiming of what our rights are. The humble person doesn't demand his way. The humble person looks to serve others, right? And Peter says we need to to serve under the mighty hand of God. Think of uh, David's words in Psalm 51, 17, where he says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart, a humble heart, oh God, you will not despise. Why? Again, because of the mighty hand of God, because of his great power. Think for a moment about the God that you and I serve, the God of creation, who said, let there be light, and there was light, who brought forth the world from nothing, who created out of nothing, that that's the God that you and I serve, the God of the Exodus, the God who went before Pharaoh, the mightiest human ruler on earth at the time, and immediately and and devastatingly humbled this man got him to the point of of driving God's people out of the land of Egypt 
and it, it says clearly in the text, raised him up so that he might show his power over him. Think of the God of, of the conquest of the promised land, the God of Jericho, who orchestrated them marching around the city seven times and then blowing trumpets to see the walls of the city fall down. Try that with your house when you get home. This, or Well, you already are home. Try that with your house this afternoon. If, if you want a new house and you want to file an insurance claim, go outside, walk around for a while, and then yell at your house. See what happens, right? Nothing. Why? Because God is not going to powerfully destroy your house the way that he powerfully destroyed Jericho. Or think about the the God of the miracles of, of the New Testament, walking on water, calming the storm, raising the dead, healing the lame. This is the God under whose mighty hand you and I are called to humble ourselves as we face suffering, as we face trials. Griffith Thomas, who was a a pastor and a commentator, says this, it's a vain thing to flinch and struggle, for God does what he wishes. If you will not be led, you will be pulled and drawn. If you will not be led by God's mighty hand, you will be pulled and drawn. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and we also need to humble ourselves because, what Peter says, because he's going to exalt us at the proper time. We need to humble ourselves because the way down is the way up. Think Matthew 23, 12, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 2, 20 through 23 talks about the fact that we have been called to suffering. Again, it's a paradigm shift in our minds. So as we think about all of this, as, as Peter's concluding his book, he's reminding us, that as aliens and strangers in this world, we need to be men of humility, that God gives no shelter to the proud, that there's no place in God's uh, economy, that there's no place with the Lord for the man who is boastful, for the man who is proud, for the man who is is defiant. But if we want to be with the Lord, if we want to be co-heirs with Christ, we need to make sure that we have humbled ourselves under the mighty hand of God, recognizing that he is the provider of everything. That's our first point this week. It's this. Humbly recognize that all you are, all you have, and all you hope to be depend upon the grace of God. It's a little bit long, so I'll leave that point up for just a minute here. But humbly recognize that all you are, all you have, and all you hope to be depend upon the grace of God. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. What does that process look like to humble ourselves that way? Well, he continues on saying this, casting all your anxieties on him. He's connecting that back. What does it look like to humble? How should I humble myself? By casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. To cast your anxieties, to cast your cares on the Lord is to transfer them to him. And this is an act of humility because it's exercising our dependence on the Lord. It's recognizing as we live as those pursuing godliness in a godless world, as we face the trials and difficulties, God doesn't want us to bend down and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. God doesn't want us to say, you know what, God, it's okay. I've got this one. Thanks for your your offer to help, but I've got it. No, God wants us as a child to his father to come back to him to say, Lord, we need you. We need you every hour, every minute of the day as the song says, Lord, I need you. We need to to cast our anxieties on him to say, I need you to work for me. 1 Peter 4, 19, 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We need to follow in the footsteps of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 23, or 23 through 25 rather. When he suffered, when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Men, as the sheep are dependent upon the shepherd, so you and I need to be dependent upon the Lord, and we need to cast our anxieties on him. That's the the humble posture that we need to have before the Lord. As we walk through trials, as we walk through difficulties in this life, we need to look to Jesus to follow his examples, to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good. Remember Philippians 4, 6, Paul's words there. Be anxious for nothing. Wow, Paul, that's a tall order. How is that possible? He says, but instead, let your request be made known to the Father. Transfer your concerns, your, cons- your cares to him entrust those things to him. Why? Because Peter continues on, because he cares for you. What an amazing thought that is for you, brothers, as as you suffer, as you endure trials, as you endure difficulties in this life, to say that I can bring my anxious thoughts to the Lord because he cares for me. The God under whose mighty hand I am humbled cares for me. Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Matthew 6, 30 through 32. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow it's thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? How much more is God going to care about you than he cares about the sparrows of the air, than he cares about the the grass of the the field, than the, the lilies in the field? God cares about you so much more. He goes on to say, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. Men, your cares, your concerns, your burdens, your fears, your trials that you are walking through right now, you have a God who knows what you need in them. And he desires that you come to him, that you cast your burdens on the Lord, Psalm 55, 22, and he will sustain you. As Peter is saying, we need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he might exalt us. How do I do that, Peter? What does that look like? Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you, because he knows what you're going through. Romans 8, 31 through 34, I love this passage. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, God is for us. This is not a a, a potential. This is since God is for us. Since God is for you, Christian. What a great confidence that is. Since he's for us, who can be against us? Some virus? No. Some uh, authority or earthly ruler or human judge or anything? No. Some enemy that you have? No. Nothing can stand against you. I love how how Paul continues. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Think John 3, 16 there. How will he not with us, with him graciously give us all things? He gave us Christ. He gave us his only son. What is there that he'll withhold from us if it's for our good? The answer there is it's nothing. It's rhetorical, right? 
Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The one who has the right to bring a charge against us is the father. But the father is the one who justified us by giving Christ. He's not going to judge us. He's not going to condemn us. Verse 34, who is to condemn? There's that question. Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Men, we've been reading John 5 in our daily Bible reading recently, where it says that the father has given all judgment to the son. And here Paul is saying that the one who has the authority from the father to judge, to condemn, he's not going to condemn you. Why, men? Because he died for you. See, he cares for us. This is why David said, God, you're my rock, my fortress, my refuge, my shelter, my stronghold. And so men, we can humble ourselves, recognizing that all that we are, all that we have, all that we hope to be depend upon the grace of God. And he is a mighty God. And he is not only a mighty God, but he is a mighty God who cares for us, who cares for you and for me. And so then we can be sober-minded we can be watchful, verse 8. For our adversary, the devil, he is still here. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him because of this mighty God under whose hand we have been humbled. Resist him because of this mighty God who cares for you. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. See, as we cast our cares on the Lord, he in turn gives us our present marching orders. And I'm thankful that he does. See, the full realization of God's care for us will be realized when we are with him in heaven. And until then, Peter is ending his letter by reminding us of what he told us at the beginning, that you and I are aliens and strangers in a world where we are not welcome. You and I live as citizens in a world that is governed by the power of the prince of the the air, the prince of darkness, by the power of, of the devil. And the devil is active men. He and his hordes of demons are active in the world in which we live. He is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we need to be aware of that. And what that needs to do is that needs to make sure that we are sober minded and we are alert. See, this world is is hard for you and I as believers to live in. And it's difficult and we grow weary in this world. And I can't think of a better illustration of that than the weariness that you and I feel right now in the midst of this lockdown under COVID-19. We're done with it, aren't we, men? It's difficult. It's, it's hard. We want, we want to go back to work. We want to go back to being productive. We want to be able to take our families to the park. We want to be able to see one another. We want to be able to in, engage with one another. And it's, it's just hard. And so I want you to think about that in, in terms of our, our sojourning here on this earth and how much greater heaven is going to be. See, we miss the fellowship that we had by being together on campus. We miss the, the camaraderie and the being able to, to, to give each other a hug or shake the hands of our brothers in Christ or just stand within three feet, let alone six feet of each other. And we miss being together as a church family. Well, men, our time here in this world should cause us to long for so much more of that when we get to eternity. Because eternity is going to be so much better even than the day that you and I are able to gather back together here on this campus, which I pray is soon. But men, we should be longing for eternity and longing to be there. And in the meantime, it may cause us to grow weary and faint-hearted while we're here because it's just like we're, we're tired of this lockdown. We become tired of living as aliens and strangers in this world. And Peter wants us to make sure that we don't let our guard down, that we need to continually be sober-minded and watchful because there is an enemy there's an enemy who's at work here. 
We need to make sure that we have not uh, uh, abandoned our post, but that we are being watchful, that we are being prepared. As he wrote in 1 Peter 1.13, he said, therefore, preparing your minds for actions and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's such a great balance there, isn't there? It's it's our responsibility to be prepared for action and to be sober-minded, but our hope is on what Christ has done for us. There's that balance, and that's what Peter's calling us here to. Why? Again, because the adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion. We've seen the National Geographic shows, haven't we, where the lion is approaching the herd of the water buffalo, and they're all gathered together, and there's always one or two that have no idea that the lion's there. And as the lion looks around and sees and picks out his next meal, he crouches and he prowls and he comes closer and closer and closer and closer. And then he lunges and attacks. And before the water buffalo knows what's coming, the the claws of the beast are sunk into him and he's dragging him down. And that water buffalo's life is done and over. Well, men, there's a difference here. Notice what Peter says the devil is. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, right? You and I shouldn't be blindsided by an attack from the enemy. We should be eyes open, aware of the fact that we live in the world where the prince of the power of the air governs and rules, right? We should be aware of that, that yes, he's under the authority of God, but Ephesians says that this is his domain right now under God's permissive will, that that Satan is operating here, and he's not operating stealthily. He's making it clear that he is a roaring lion out to destroy you. And so we need to be sober-minded and watchful. Job 1, Satan shows up before God and goes hard after Job. You don't think that he has demons and, and those that want to go hard after you and after me? Of course he does. So we need to be aware. And we need to be watchful and we need to be on guard. And that's point number two for us this week. It's this, vigilantly guard your life like Satan has you in his sights. Vigilantly guard your life like Satan has you in his sights. Peter describes him as our adversary. It's a word that has courtroom language associated with it. It's the prosecuting attorney and you're in the defense You're sitting there and the prosecutor is coming after you and he's coming hard after you and he's hostile towards you and he's accusing you. Your adversary, the devil, the devil, it's a title that means slanderer, one who attacks and he's out to devour you. He's out to devour you. Again, think of Job and how Satan went after Job. Think of, of, of Peter and his denials of Christ. Think of uh, Paul and the thorn in the flesh, which was a messenger from Satan. Think of the, the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus wrote to them and said that Satan was going to imprison some of them. Or just think generally, 1 John two fifteen through 17 the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life that are part and parcel with the systems of this world. Satan is going to go after you and leave in his wake a, a, a trail of broken friendships, broken marriages, lustful passion, fits of anger, spiritual laziness. Man, if, if we are not on guard, then we are going to fall prey to these things. Then, then we are going to walk in the flesh and not in the spirit. Then, then we are going to be giving in 
to what Satan wants from us, which is for us to live in our sinful passions. Those sinful passions that Peter talked about earlier in this letter that wage war against the flesh. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to inflame those within you and to devour you and to devour me. And so men, if we are not on guard against those things, we are prey to an enemy. Not one who is going to blindside us. One who we should see coming because we hear his roar in the world around us. And so Peter says, resist him. Vigilantly guard. What does that look like? How do I do that? You can resist the devil. The devil is not stronger than the spirit that lives within you. In fact, the spirit that lives within you can give you victory because of the cross. That's Romans 6, right? If I've been crucified with Christ, then I've been set free from the power of sin. Should I continue in sin? May it never be. Because you've died to sin. You've been buried with Christ so that you might walk in newness of life, right? You and I have been freed from the power of sin. We are no longer slaves of this world. Ephesians 2, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But now we have been made alive with Christ, right? So we have died to that prince of the power of the air. Man, you are not enslaved to the devil. You can resist him firm in your faith. James says something similar. James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't be a sitting duck to your sinful passions, men. Take action. Discipline yourself. Seek accountability. Memorize the word of God. Get into the word. Don't put yourself in situations where you know sin is waiting, right? We need to to be students of ourselves and know, okay, where am I tempted to, to fall prey to sin? Where am I a sitting duck? Where is the roaring lion in my life? And what do I need to do to flee from that? As Paul told Timothy, flee from youthful passions. Flee from these things. It's not a manly thing to to walk into sin and say, well, I'm just going to white knuckle resist it. No, you should run from those things, flee from those things. And in so doing, you will be resisting Satan firm in your faith. Your faith, the truth of scripture, sound doctrine. Those things that that Jude found, when he says, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the, the faith that was delivered for the saints. Ephesians 6, take up the armor of God. Why? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, says Paul, but it's against the spiritual forces that are now at work in the sons of disobedience. Men, you and I daily have to take up the armor of God. We need to daily put that on and battle against the enemy. Resist the devil, knowing that the same kind of suffering is being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's an encouragement there that we're not alone in this battle that we are not by ourselves in this, but that we join arms as, as aliens and strangers with brothers in Christ. And men, you have those brothers in your small group. You have those brothers if you're in an HFG. You have those brothers in your life to walk through this life with so that you may battle together with them. Resist them, him, resist the enemy, firm in your faith alongside your brothers. What an amazing thing the church is that he's given to us. That day is coming, men when we will have no more pain or sorrow, no more suffering. But until then, we live in a world where the enemy is prowling. Not prowling to blindside us, but he's roaring as he prowls. And so be on guard, be sober-minded, stay alert, vigilantly guard your life like Satan has you in his sights. Because if he doesn't, he's got a a, a demon. He's got a, a servant of his who does have you in his sights. Peter says, and after you've suffered for a little while, verse 10, 
the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to get straight to the third point this week, and it's this. Strengthen yourself as you eagerly await the day Christ calls you home. Strengthen yourself as you eagerly await the day Christ calls you home. I love the way that Peter lands the plane in this letter when he says, after you've suffered a little while, again, he's writing to these believers who are suffering persecution away from home, away from everything, wondering when is this going to end? right? When is this going to be over? When are things going to go back to the way they were? Thoughts that you and I have even had recently, I'm sure, on a much different scale for them. But still, Peter says, look, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all creation, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory. Notice the the temporal contrast in these verses. You suffer for a little while, and there's a God who's called you to his eternal glory. What an amazing and encouraging contrast that is, isn't it? You're going to suffer for a a brief amount of time in light of the fact of the eternal glory that God has called you to in Christ. And he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know, man, I praise God for eternity and for heaven. Just like the apostle Paul said, if, if heaven's not there, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then you and I are most pitiable of all men. But the reality, it's there. And so Peter ends this letter with two encouragements to us. Two encouragements to to spur us on in our endurance, to spur us on in our faithfulness as aliens and strangers in this world, to to spur us on as we think about being alert and sober-minded and vigilantly guarding against the enemy, right? He wants to encourage us twofold here. The first way is this, your suffering is only for a brief time. And it may be hard right now and it may be feeling to you right now that this doesn't feel brief. But Peter's writing to encourage you from the perspective of eternity. That when you and I are in heaven, or as Pastor Mike often says, 10,000 years from now, 100 years from now, this isn't going to matter. This trial that you're going through right now, as hard as it may be right now, the tears that you've wept right now, 100 years from now, will be not even a blip on your radar. Why? Because you will be in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. And so this time that you spend suffering right now is but a moment. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, all the way through 18, that that entire passage is so great. But one of the things he says here is this light momentary affliction. This light momentary affliction. And he does the same thing Peter does. It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. What an amazing thought again. This light momentary. Men, in the grand scheme of things, it's small. It's small. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul writes, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Man, we can understand this, right? Because the older that we get, the shorter our years seem, don't they? I remember growing up 
thinking to myself, man, it's going to be forever until I turn 10 because I wanted to be in double digits, right? Or it's going to be forever until I become a teenager. It's going to be, oh man, it's going to be forever until I'm 16. And now I'm watching my children go, grow up and I'm just wishing that time would slow down with them because from my perspective, looking at their lives, the years are so much shorter. And I know as I grow older, they're going to be shorter and shorter and shorter still. And man, that's a grace that God has provided for us, I think in some ways, to remind us that this life is so temporary, but eternity is forever. It's forever. And so I want to encourage you to to zoom out from where you are. The suffering that you're going through, zoom out and gain the, the eternal perspective, if you can, by God's grace, to be able to see that this is but a light and momentary affliction for you, and that there is an eternal weight of glory that is prepared for you. That the God of all grace, as Peter says here, has called you to his eternal glory, and that you are going to be with him forever there. As Peter described that, that inheritance for us, that eternal glory for us, back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, where he described it as an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that's being kept in heaven for you who by God's power through faith are being guarded for that salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Man, it's going to be here before we know it. It's going to be here in the blink of an eye. And then we'll be with him. And then we will be with him. And we will know what he means, that this is a light momentary affliction. We will know what Peter means, that we are suffering here for only a little while because we will be in the place, Revelation 21.4, where Paul, or sorry, John saw and said that, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain for the former things have passed away. We will be there. John wrote as well in 1 John 3, 2 through 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus comes back. When we see him, we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Men, you suffer now, but only for a little while. Only for a little while. And you suffer now under the hand of the God who cares for you, as we already talked about. And that's our second motivation for suffering and our second spurring on here is because God is going to enable you to endure the storms because he cares for you. And that's what Peter says. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that's not talking about the future. Maybe the ultimate realization of that is the future. That's talking about the here and the now. That presently, God is going to establish you. He's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He's going to restore you. He's going to condition you. He's going to make you sufficient as a trainer would with an an, an athlete. That is what God's going to do in your life currently. He's going to be sanctifying you that way. And he's going to confirm you. He's going to strengthen you to endure. He's going to make you more than able to, to face the trials in your life. You, you may be in a situation right now, man, where you're thinking to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to do this anymore. I don't know how I'm going to put one foot forward anymore. I lost my job. I don't know where I'm going to get food for my family next week. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find work again after this pandemic is over. I don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe your marriage is struggling. I I, I don't know how 
this marriage will ever work out. I don't know how my son or daughter will ever be saved. I don't know how my wife will ever be saved. And man, I just want to encourage you that you have a God who is going to restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you to be able to endure through this trial right now. I love the the quote from George Whitfield, who said this, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. That's playing into what what Peter's writing here. Man, you are immortal. In other words, you're not going anywhere until God calls you home. And until he calls you home, he is going to strengthen you. He's going to restore you. He's going to confirm you. He's going to establish you in the here and now to be able to endure. Why? Because he cares for you. Because he loves you. And so he's not going to let us go anywhere until our work is done. Left to ourselves, left to myself, man, I would fold under the weight of this world. But praise God, I'm not left to myself. We have the Holy Spirit who Jesus said in John 16 was coming to encourage us and to teach us and to lead us in the way of truth. And we have the Holy Spirit, man, living within us. And God, through the Spirit in our lives, is restoring us, confirming us, strengthening us, giving us that inner resolve and establishing us, giving us a firm foundation so that we will be immovable through trials. And so Peter is encouraging us. We're never going to be left abandoned. We have a great hope that God is going to enable us to stand firm and we can strengthen ourselves as we eagerly await the day that he calls us home. And we can pray and we can say to one another, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Peter ends with some final Greetings. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. There's the charge, man. It's what this book has been about. Stand firm in the grace of God. It's our responsibility. We stand firm, but we stand firm in his grace. He works through us. He supports us. He establishes us. He confirms us. He strengthens us. He restores us. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What a great conclusion to this letter, right? A letter written to believers who are suffering. Believers who are in trials. Believers who are persecuted. Believers who are scattered abroad. And he ends with the words, peace to you who are in Christ. Again, men, this has been Peter's blueprints, not Peter's blueprints, God's blueprints for us. God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live in this life where I live as uh, uh, one pursuing godliness in a godless world? And as I pursue godliness, Lord, in this world, this, this godless world that I live in is going to hate me. You've made that clear. What, what should I do? How should I endure? How should I press on? When I grow discouraged, what should I, how do I do this, Lord? He's given us First Peter to give us these blueprints, this instruction manual for how to pursue godliness, how to live with one another, how to love one another as an overflow of our love for the Lord, how to entrust ourselves to the Father as the Son entrusted himself to the Father, how to follow Jesus, how to look to Jesus and to, to walk as he walked to endure this suffering how to live a life of such godliness in the midst of a godless world that people look at us and and want to know why we live this life so that we might have an opportunity to share the gospel with those people. This is the the words that 
Peter has written to us. And he's wrapped this up and he's landed the plane by encouraging us to be humble before God. As we suffer, not to grow proudly defiant, to shake our fist and to demand our rights, but to humbly entrust ourselves to the Father, depending on him because he's given us everything, right? Everything that we are, everything that we have is is from him. So Peter's written to us to to humble ourselves, to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. And he's also written to us to, to be on guard, which goes hand in hand with being humble. To not be so proud that we think we won't fall because when we are that proud, the enemy's lurking, right? Sin is crouching at the door, ready to devour us. Satan is roaring around like a prowling, is prowling around rather, like a roaring lion ready to to devour you. And so we need to be on guard. And then finally, we need to remember that this is just a, a little while. And we need to eagerly anticipate the return of Christ. We need to eagerly anticipate when he calls us home to be with him. And as we do that, that can strengthen us because we can draw courage to know that God is going to confirm us. He's going to strengthen us. He's going to restore us. He's going to establish us because as long as he still has work for us to do here on earth, we aren't going anywhere. And so men, stand firm in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for this semester having spent so much time studying it. I pray that it would stay with us. I pray that it would be on our minds, on our hearts. God, I pray that this would be a book that some of the the passages that we've read would have been so impactful that they have emblazoned themselves on our thoughts, Lord, that they have emblazoned themselves in our minds, that they have become part of our tool belt and part of our our arsenal with the sword of the Spirit so that when we face trials, we have your word from 1 Peter close at hand to encourage us to press on. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful stewards of God's word so that we would apply the things that we've learned from this book that we wouldn't just leave it behind as an exercise in intellect or an exercise in just becoming increasingly knowledgeable about your word, but that this word would transform us, man. Father, I, I pray these things and I ask these things, knowing that in and of ourselves, we can't will ourselves to do this in our flesh, but we need your spirit within us, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. And I pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.